Welcome to the Find Your Leadership Confidence Podcast with Vicki Nedling. You are about to discover impactful lessons that help you grow as an individual, grow your confidence, and find the positive and good within you, so you powerfully and authentically become the best version of yourself. Be sure you visit our website at www.findyourleadershipconfidence.com. While you're there, subscribe to us via your favorite network. Now tune in, get ready, and enjoy the journey of emerging as a leader of exception in the 21st century. Welcome to the Find Your Leadership Confidence podcast. I'm your host, Vicki Nethling, coming to you from Roswell, Georgia, where it's always sunny. Well, not always, but today it was. <laughs> The goal of our podcast is to share topics and guests that will empower you to grow as a confident leader, to take your business and your life to that next level. Today, I am so excited for you to meet my guest, Dave Combs. Dave is a songwriter, a photographer, an entrepreneur, an author with four decades of experience writing over 120 songs and creating 14 albums of soothing, relaxing, instrumental piano music. We talked about that, how that just brought back memories from my love of my grandmother's love of piano music. His songwriting began with the now popular standard Rachel song. His soothing, relaxing music has been played millions of times worldwide on the radio, satellite, and all internet streaming media. And it continues to touch lives of millions of people all over the world. He is also the author of the best-selling new book, Touched by the Music, How the Story and Music of Rachel's song can change your life. Please join me in welcoming Dave Combs. Well, thank Dave. you, Vicki. Thank you. That was a wonderful, very kind introduction. I appreciate that. You're very welcome. And I wanted to start before I got into my questions. Not everybody might know your song. And so if you will indulge me, I'd like to just take a moment and uh, play your song. Okay. So let's do that. Now, let me see. I think I need to go back here and do some sharing. So we're going to share my screen and we're going to share sound. And this you all can get just as I did off of YouTube. Here it is, Rachel's song. But make sure you look for a composed by none other than David M. Combs. Piano, keyboard, and arranged by Gary Prim. And the keyboard, the artist himself, is with us tonight, Dave Combs, and the guitarist by Stan Moon. So take a listen to this beautiful song.
Okay, so that was a beautiful interlude that we had. I hope everybody appreciated that as much as me. Kind of hurts from smiling so much because that song was just so beautiful. All right, the way that I uh, normally start these uh, podcast is I ask you a simple question before I get into the meat of the things. And that's just an icebreaker to tell me, where do you live today? What do you call home? I live in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, uh, probably, uh, what is it, about uh, what, five hours from you down mm -hmm. in Roswell. Uh, up, come up uh, I-95 or 85, <laughs> and here, here you are. But uh, my wife and I have lived in Winston-Salem since 1969 when I graduated from college and she graduated in 1968. We met here in Winston-Salem and got married a year later and we've lived here for the most part for all the years since and except for about three years that we moved to Bethesda, Maryland area where uh, I, I was working at Western Electric at and and she mm -hmm. was working uh, for the president in Washington. So uh, we moved up there for three years and uh, then we moved back, back to Winston-Salem. So Winston-Salem is kind of the place where we've lived longer than we've lived anywhere else in, in the world. So it, we call this home and it's the yeah. wonderful, wonderful place to live here in the Piedmont, yeah. uh, home mm -hmm. of, uh, of Wake Forest University where I got my MBA back in 1978. And uh, we're real close to the mountains. We're only an hour and a half from the Blue Ridge Parkway and Boone and Blowing Rock, North Carolina. We're only about four hours from the coast in North Carolina with the beach. So we're, we've got the best of both worlds here. Yeah. It's a great place to live. I could tell from your accent that you were from North Carolina. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, I was born in Tennessee. So if you really want yeah, to, I, that's I, I right. can, I can pour that. on the Tennessee hillbilly <laughs> accent here. So. Um, so cool. All right. So how and when did you write your very first song? I was 33 years old. This was in 1981. I was sitting at home one evening after my job, working at all day at my job at, with Western Electric. And my way of relaxing is always just to sit down at the piano and, and play something. Music is always especially playing the piano music is always so relaxing to me. It's just because mm -hmm. uh, I think <laughs> when you're playing music on the piano, you, you cannot be thinking about all the other things in the world or whatever. <laughs> it kind of takes you, you've got to take your mind off all those things and focus on the music. And so that evening in 1981, January, I sat down at my piano and I played the song you just heard. That was the melody. I didn't, that's not the arrangement that I played, mm -hmm. but I played that tune. Yeah. And as, as you can tell from listening to it, it's a very simple, but very pretty tune with lots of beautiful chord progressions, you know, mm -hmm. from a C to A minor, a D minor, G7. It's just a really, it almost harkens back to the old uh, rock and roll or the doo-wop or those kind of chord progressions, which I love listening mm -hmm. to growing up and but it's just a beautiful progression of chords with a very simple wonderful melody in it well i played it i didn't even realize i was playing a new song i just simply played that song i promise you that i did not try to write it it just came to me and i played it mm -hmm. didn't even really think about it 
And then a couple of days later, my wonderful wife, Linda, came home from work and she said, uh, Dave, what is the name of this song that I've had stuck in my head all day long? And she hummed a little bit of it. And I said, well, it doesn't have a name. And she said, what? <laughs> you play it on the piano all the time. I said, well, it's just something that I guess I just made up. Wow. And she, Linda got all excited and she said, well, have you written it down? And I said, no, I'm, I'm not going to oh, forget it. No. And she said, uh, no, no, I'm, something might happen to you, Dave, and that song would be gone. So you better write it down. So I did. I wrote down the, the melody mm -hmm. and the chords and mm -hmm. put it in my piano bench. So she was happy and I, everybody's happy. So I played the song, you know, periodically. We tried to come up with a name for it. Could not find a name that really fit the song. Mm -hmm. So move the calendar forward a couple of years, 1983. Mm -hmm. Some good friends of ours have a little baby girl named Rachel. And they asked me and Linda to be her parents, asked me and Linda to be her godparents. Oh. So at Rachel's christening service, we're sitting there in the church, just us and the family and the minister. And at the end of the formal part of the service, there, I, all during the service, I'd noticed there was a beautiful piano sitting in the middle of the platform up at the front of the church. And I kept my eye on that piano. And at, the, <laughs> at the end of the formal part of the service, I punched Linda and I said, hey, what do you think about me playing this song now as yeah. part at the end of the service? She mm -hmm. said, oh, that's a great idea. So I went up, of course, and asked permission of the parents and the <laughs> minister to it'd be okay if I played a song on the piano. They said, of course, yeah. I walked over to the piano, sat down, and I played the song, yeah. the, the melody, the, the song as I, it didn't have a name at that point. So mm -hmm. I played the song and I got almost all the way through the song and I kept hearing some sniffles in the crowd and <clears throat> people clearing their throat. And, you know, it was, well, if you've been to a baby's christening service, you know, they're very, they're very tender services mm -hmm. anyway. And yes. it, it doesn't take much to get a tear to come out of your eye at a beautiful <laughs> service like that. Well, even my, I, I noticed that I had some tears coming out of my eyes. Well, as the song finished, as I finished playing it, I looked over to little Rachel in the arms of her mother. And I said, from now on, this song will be called Rachel's song in her honor. And that's how it got its name. And it just was the perfect fit. Everybody loved it. And I played it many, many hundreds of times after that. And mm -hmm. it just was something everybody loved that song. Now, what happened was that song changed the tra trajectory of my life because mm -hmm. three years later after that, in 1986, mm -hmm. I was having to work during the week, all week long, in Nashville, Tennessee. We were cutting over some new software at a manufacturing plant there with AT&T. Mm -hmm. And that was my job was to help with that. And so I'd go on Monday and come home on Friday. And Nashville, as you know, is mm -hmm. Music City, USA, right? Yes, <laughs> and so Linda said, well, while you're in Nashville, why don't you go and get a demo recording <laughs> made? of Rachel's song, you know, find a studio and a professional musician and get it recorded. Okay. So I've gotten my rental car one evening and I drove around downtown Nashville. And <laughs> if, if you, I'm sure you're familiar with Nashville, there's an area called music square. Mm -hmm. It's where the country music hall of fame and 
and the ASCAP and BMI headquarters and the RCA studios that you can tour are, are around the corner there and everything musical in those two wow. square block areas. And I drove down this one street called Roy Acuff Place. Now, your folks will remember Roy Acuff was a very famous country music star on the Grand Ole Opry and just mm -hmm. much yeah, loved. Yeah, I know Roy. Everybody loved Roy Acuff. Well, they named the street after him. And so I was driving down this little side street, and at the end of the street was a big building with a barn-shaped roof. And out on the street side was this great big water wheel, you know, like you'd see at the, uh, the Mabry, Mabry Mill up yeah, on the right, parkway right. or great big mm -hmm. water wheel. And on the side of the building, the sign said, the music mill. I said, okay, oh. that's, in, that's encouraging. So in the parking lot I go, and sure enough, I see a man sitting at a desk in the lobby. So I go and knock on the door and <laughs> he comes over and unlocks it and opens it, says, hello, I'm George Clinton, can I help you? <laughs> Now, it's not the George Clinton everybody. Okay. That. It's a, there's a lot of George Clintons around, but this fellow was a recording engineer in mm -hmm. Nashville, Tennessee. And so he introduces himself and I told him I was looking for a studio. And he said, well, come on in. <laughs> and I, I stepped into the lobby and over on the left wall of this two-story lobby was a life-size picture, maybe even bigger than life, of Glenn Campbell. And then straight in front of me was this huge picture of that wonderful group, Alabama. Yep. And then over here is the Forrester sisters. And then there's gold records and platinum records framed and put on the wall all around this place. Well, I thought, well, this is, this is something else. And I said, George, I have never been in a studio in my life. And he said, well, you're in luck tonight. There's nobody recording right now. Let me take you on a tour of Studio A. <clears throat> well, Studio A is always, you know, the, the big, the, the, the showcase studio, mm -hmm. the big one. So we go in this recording, the big studio room. You could put an orchestra in that room, and I'm sure it was designed to, to record, you know, a, a, a big chorus or orchestra. A lot mm -hmm. of musicians could get in there. Back in the corner was this nine-foot concert grand piano back there, and and lined with you know glass enclosed rooms for the vocalists and the drums and all that stuff and he said well let's go into the control room where all the magic happens so mm -hmm. he opens this big thick about eight inch thick door soundproof door into the control room and we step in there and first thing i see is the console this console was about eight feet long and I later learned it probably had about 32 tracks. In other words, you could record 32 different things mm -hmm. at the same time all using that console. And it had sliders and lights and switches and knobs. And, and I told uh, George, I said, man, you could, you could launch a spaceship right in here. <laughs> <laughs> so he chuckled. And then around the wall was these tape recording machines and digital recorders and and on the, the, the wall on each side of this big glass window where you could look out into the, the studio where the musicians were, was these big speakers so that you could hear the sound really, really clear and real good. And I was in total awe of this place. How much does a place like this rent for? He said, well, it's $125 an hour plus engineer. Oh. Now, this is 1986. 
dollars $125 an hour in 1986 would be over $400 yeah. an hour today with inflation. Mm -hmm. So I, that was a whole lot of money back then. Mm -hmm. And so I, he said, well, don't worry about it. He said, the fellow who owns this studio owns a small studio across the street. It's in a little, what used to be a rent house. And it's, it's $15 an hour plus engineer. Uh, and he said it'd be perfect for you. It's, it, all it, it's got a small console, a baby grand Yamaha piano, perfect for what you need. I said, well, that is great. So now all I need is a musician to, to arrange and play my, perform my song for me. And I said, it's just a simple little melody on the piano, a real pretty little simple melody. And he thought for a second and he said, I know just the right person for you. His, his name is Gary Prim, P-R-I-M, and he and I, I've known him forever, and he and I go to church together, and he's just a wonderful, wonderful piano player, and said, he'll do a great job for you. So let's go back to my desk, and I'll write down his phone number for you. He did, and handed me the piece of paper, and, and I thanked him profusely, got out in my rental car, and I hightailed it to back to my hotel room to call Gary Prim. Yeah. I couldn't call him on a cell phone because cell phones hadn't been, <laughs> they weren't invented yet. I couldn't send him an email because uh, the internet had not been invented yet either. <laughs> so I had to go back to the hotel and call him on a landline, which I did. And I got his answering machine and he called me back in about 30 minutes. And he says, uh, what can I do for you? I said, well, George Clinton says you would do a great job doing a, re a demo recording of a little song I've written called Rachel's Song. And he said, well, I'll be happy to do that. I said, well, what do you need from me? I'll send you whatever you need. He said, I just need two things. I need a recording of you playing it, so I'll know kind of what it sounds like. And I need a lead sheet. And I said, okay, what's a lead sheet? <laughs> I was showing my ignorance really big time. <laughs> and he said, well, it's, it's, it's real simple. He said, it's just the melody and the chords written out on a piece of paper. I said, well, I've got that. I just didn't know what to call it. <laughs> So I got back home and I mailed Gary the cassette tape of me playing it on the piano and the lead sheet. And then we met two weeks later in this little studio across the street from the music mill. And it was on August the 22nd, 1986 at 6 p.m. I will never forget that because that night, that evening changed my life. Wow. At six o'clock, Gary Prim comes walking in the front door carrying his synthesizer. It's a little Yamaha DX7 synthesizer, great, great analog synthesizer. And he sets it down in the next to the piano in there. And then he sits down at the piano and starts warming up. And he's a wonderful, instantly, we just clicked in, instantly. Yeah. It's one of those people who are very friendly. We just became instant friends. Yeah. And so I'm in the control room with the engineer. Gary's out there warming up on the piano. No time, he says, well, I'm ready. Okay, so the engineer pushes the record button and Gary starts playing my song. Now, I am blown away by what I'm hearing because, Vicki, I had never heard anybody play my music but me. So you can imagine, I had no idea what to expect from an arrangement by a professional musician of my, of my song. And so he play, plays through part of it. I couldn't believe what I'm hearing. He gets most of the way through it and he stops. He said, ah, I think I can do better, better than that. So rewind the tape back to the beginning, start recording again.
This time, Gary gets all the way through the song perfectly, did not miss a single note anywhere. Mm -hmm. And I'm just blown away. And I'm in there in the control room and I thought, wow, this is just way beyond what I expected. And if he had stopped there, I'd have been happy. Mm -hmm. But Gary came, came in the control room and he says, now you need to fix me up so that I can record from my synthesizer. I'm gonna add some more tracks to this, make it really special. He said, one thing I wanna do is I wanna add an electric piano sound to be right on top of, or what he called doubling, mm -hmm. what he just played on the real piano. And when you listen to the recording that, uh, that, that we just played, mm -hmm. when the chorus part of the song came in, mm -hmm. you'll notice that the piano sound started sounding a little fuller. It yeah, was a, different, yeah. a little different sound. Well, that's because it was that time, it was the piano and the electric piano sound together. Yeah. The, first, the first verse is all piano, just piano solo. Mm -hmm. And then in the chorus part is when the electric piano kicks in. And so he, he played, puts the electric piano in it from that, that point on. And then he said, oh, I, I need some more instrumentation too. It, it needs some bottom and it needs some top. So we're gonna put some low strings and we're gonna put some high strings. So two more tracks, low strings. And he plays along with it and gets those in there. Two more tracks, high strings, plays those and gets that in there. And then he, and there you'll notice, you'll hear some, some horn sounds mm -hmm. throughout the, the, mm -hmm. uh, the song a little bit. So he put on the horn sound on his synthesizer and right in a few select places, he put some horn sounds in there. And then he said, I think that's probably about enough. So. We, uh, he comes into the control room. We're standing there, and of course, the engineer rewinds and puts everything kind of sort of balanced, mm -hmm. at a rough balance of it. We listened to it. I could not believe my ears. It was sounded better than anything I'd heard on the radio. Of course, I'm a little biased, I guess, but it <laughs> did. It was just, it, and, and it just blew me away. And so Gary says, I think that's got it. And I said, I, I, mean, I know it does. So I thanked him profusely, wrote him a check for his agreed upon fee, and, and he left. And I did not know whether I would ever see that young man again or not. Now, I say young man because I was you know, only 36 or so, and he was in his late 20s at that point. Just uh, had just gotten married not, not too long before that. And uh, so he's a really young, young guy. But I did not know that that young man would later become like a brother to me. Mm -hmm. I, I saw his kids grow up, his, uh, his wife, Julie, and Gary and I, we we're all like brothers and sisters. We're more like family than anything else. Ah, and because I, I went back to Nashville over 15 years and recorded over 170 songs with Gary in the studio, 14 albums worth. Now I wrote 120 of those. And the rest of them were favorite hymns and you know popular mm -hmm. songs, but but that young man and I have remained dear friends over all these years, and that recording that night changed my life because what I heard was a hundred times better than I anticipated. Let's put it mm -hmm. that way, and everybody that I played it for was just blown away with mm -hmm. that music. It touched, it touched them somehow. Yeah. And you know, whether you're in a mood to be uh, uplifted or in a joyful mood or whether you're in a somber mood, whatever, it kind of has all of those elements in it. Yeah. 
You know, I've had people tell me that I laughed and I cried and <laughs> all those emotions come out. And yeah. it's just such, amazing. Such a rich, rich melody, you know. Yeah. Has so much depth to it. Yeah, and it's kind of unforgettable too. I mean, people mm -hmm. still, once you've heard the song, you could probably hum the melody yourself without any problem. It's very simple. Well, it, I did get it played a lot, that recording. I got mm -hmm. it played on the radio, our local radio station here, put it on the radio through a friend of mine who had a radio program. He was an announcer on the station and had a mm -hmm. big band, a big band radio program. He loved the song, so he played it as part of his big band show. And then everybody started calling in to the radio station about that <laughs> song that he just played. And the radio station manager called me and he said, Dave, I've never had this happen to me in my over 20 years of being on the radio. My phone bank lit up when, when Bob played that song on, on uh, Rachel's song on the radio. Every, the phone bank just, everybody called in. What's that wow. song you just played? Can you play it again? Tell us more about the Rachel song or, and everything. And he said, Dave, this, this song is special and you need to do something with that song. Well, that was, couldn't have been more true. <laughs> I decided that I had to get that song on the radio everywhere. Now, I didn't know how to do that. All I knew was I got that on the radio because a friend of mine was the announcer. How do you get it on radio stations that never heard of me? Yeah. Well, I did figure it out. I found out the phone numbers for all these easy listening radio stations. <laughs> and one of them was right where you are there in Roswell, Georgia. Yeah. There was an easy listening. I think WPCH was with the call signs mm -hmm. for it at the time, Peach Radio. And all, and I, I found the phone list of all the easy listening stations in the country. And I started calling and I would send them a copy of Rachel's song and they, it, to, a, to a person, they loved it. And they mm -hmm. put it on their station. And then I found out that there were a lot of radio stations that didn't do their own programming. Yeah. They were programmed by a firm out in Chicago called Bonneville Broadcasting. And they would do the programming and send it out to all their, their stations uh -huh. that subscribe. I sent it to them. And the guy on uh, Bonneville, he loved it. He put it in his playlist. And all of a sudden, bang, I am in 200 radio stations just <laughs> like that. And there were about like 400 stations in the country that played my music uh, for a long, long time. And that's how it really got spread around. And people, a lot of people heard Rachel's song. And I started getting mail. People would call the radio station and say, what is that song you just played? And they'd get my address off the record and, and send me a letter. I started getting fan mail. Wow. And, and that that was the beginning of that. And so I knew that it was touching people's lives because they were pouring their soul out of how it really touched them. Mm -hmm. And I, over the years, I have received over 50,000 letters oh my goodness. from people about Rachel's song and my music. I have boxes and boxes of those letters in my basement. And the very most special ones I put in scrapbooks. Mm -hmm. And I have 23 scrapbooks, these oh. big, big, thick scrapbooks, full. Oh if, my I ever, if I ever want to get inspired or uplifted, just pull out a scrapbook at random and just start reading. They're just fantastic letters. And that was really the impetus for me writing my book. You know, my book's mm -hmm. called Touched by the Music, How the Story and Music of Rachel's Song Can Change Your Life. Well, it sure changed mine. 
And chapter 21 in my book, I put about 22 pages of these stories that are letters that I got oh, from, from people. people. Oh, yeah. so and, good. Oh, they're just wonderful. You you better get your box of Kleenex out yeah, when you yeah. read it. Because some, of them, are, definitely. some of them are real touching. What um, what does Rachel think about this? Uh, she's got to be an adult now. Oh, yeah. She's a, a grown adult now. <laughs> she When she was a little girl, uh, her mother would say that when they play Rachel's song, the recording that we've, we've sent to them eventually, that uh, she would say, my song. That's my mm -hmm. song. <laughs> yeah, I would think there would be so much pride yeah, so in knowing, loved. gosh. So she loved the song, too. And we have we have protected her anonymity all these years. So I don't want people, you know, harassing somebody. There's some weird people in the world these yeah. days. So. So we've protected Rachel's identity and uh, respected that. So, nice. but she is a wonderful young lady. So, how did you decide which uh, you have this, um, the music and gift sort stores and things? How do you go about um, deciding where you put your music in? Um, you know, in the old fashioned, the albums, we, you know, now it's EPs or I don't know, you just digital, all yeah, digital now. But yeah, back yeah. then it was cassette tapes mainly in the beginning. Mm -hmm. And then CDs came mm -hmm. around in the mid 1980s, toward the end of the 1980s, they were really taken off. And so I did have to decide how am I going to have my music out there to be yeah. purchased by people in a retail environment? Now, sure, I could. People could write to me, and I would respond by by mail and send them one. But but that was a, a small fraction of the people that really yeah. would want probably want to buy the music. Well, I approached the record stores back then. We used to have something called a record store. <laughs> yes. and record Bar was one of them. I forget what the others were named, but uh, they sold records. And I approached them about carrying my music, and I got nowhere. They mm -hmm. never heard of me. They never heard they. First of all, it was instrumental music. They were all interested in country and rock and jazz and all the other kinds of music. But instrumental, what they called elevator music, they, they could have cared less about. And so uh, I'd got nowhere. And it was only after a lady that I worked with who had a friend who owned a gift shop. And my friend that I worked with said, can I give a CD of Rachel's song to my friend Jane that owns this gift shop in Old Town Alexandria? Mm -hmm. Now, if, you, if you've been to Alexandria, Virginia, you know it's a very wonderful tourist town right on the, the uh, across from Washington, D.C., right on the Potomac River. Mm -hmm. Lots of gift shops and restaurants and great places to just visit. Mm -hmm. And so she gave a CD of Rachel's song to her friend Jane who owned this gift shop the name of it was called America. She sold everything in there that was patriotic. If it was red, oh. white, red, white, and blue, she sold it in that little gift shop. And she played patriotic music. She had a five CD changer, wonderful sound system throughout the store, and she played all this wonderful patriotic music. Well, my friend that I worked with gave her the CD of Rachel's song. So she mm -hmm. puts that in her CD changer. And the next thing I know, I get a phone call from Jane at the, her shop, and she says, Dave, I got a problem. She says, when your song comes on the sound system in my store, every customer in there comes right over to the counter and says, what is that music you're playing? 
and I want to take that home with me if you have that for sale. Well, she didn't have it for sale, of course. All she had was that one copy. She said, can you sell me some CDs and tapes at wholesale and, and let me offer them to my customers? So I had never sold any of my music at wholesale. I didn't even know how the wholesale retail thing really worked. So we reached an agreement on the wholesale price and the retail price. And so I said, okay, I can do that. She said, can you bring them to me tonight? <laughs> I said, okay, I, I can't, because we were living in, uh, in Maryland at Maryland, the time. Maryland, yeah, Bethesda. Yeah, and uh, near, I was actually North Potomac, Maryland, mm -hmm. near Bethesda. And uh, so Linda that evening, Linda and I boxed up a, a box of tapes and CDs, took them down to Old Town, gave them to Jane in her shop, and then we went out for a nice meal at a restaurant. And so I thought, this is great. So we'll see what happens. Two or three days later, my phone rings again. And I need more. I need more. I'm out. Uh, those Such are all a good gone. problem to have. <laughs> it's a really good problem. So she says, right, can you bring me some more? How about double the order this time? Okay. Oh. So we did the same thing and boxed them up and took them to her. And Linda and I made that trip every week. Oh. For over a year, oh. and and Jane sold thousands of cassette tapes and CDs out of that one little gift shop from just playing it on her sound system in the store. Thousands. I mean, a lot of money. She could not believe it. I couldn't believe it. And this is where my analytical brain kicked in. Now, I'm a math major, physics minor. I have my MBA, and I am in technology. I was a mm -hmm. computer programmer and I've been in technology all my life. So Dave Combs is very analytical. Some people might've called me a geek. I, <laughs> maybe not to my face, but anyhow, <laughs> anyway, I was, I was a computer guy. So, um, I basically looked at the situation and I knew enough to know that if that many CDs and tapes could be sold in that gift shop, that was a great business model. So what I did, I made a spreadsheet. This is back before Microsoft Excel even existed, but we had something called a spreadsheet on the computer. Mm -hmm. So I made a column, and in that column of data, I put how many tapes and CDs that Jane had sold in her shop, how much that she had paid me for those, and how much it cost me to, to purchase those, mm -hmm. you multiply all that out and get the gross profit from those sales in mm -hmm. the bottom line number. Well, that was a pretty attractive number. It was a good bottom line number. And I thought, wow, this is amazing. And then is where my other analytical part of the brain kicks in. I said, okay, what if I had one gift shop, just one like hers in each of the 50 states? So make me another column. Column one times 50 is column two. You add all the numbers up at the bottom. Whoa, now that's a really good looking number. <laughs> okay. Well, let's not get greedy, but let's say just for talking purposes, let's say I only had five per state, 250 total in the whole country. It's a big country with lots of thousands of gift shops. So surely I can find 250. Column three. Down at the bottom is the gross profit number for that. Linda, come here and look at this number. I no I, longer am a geek. I am no longer a geek, and <laughs> I think uh, this is about three times what I make it work right now. And guess what we got to do? 
<laughs> we got to find a way to replicate this store 250 times, and then we can do what we've talked about all our life is work for ourselves and be an entrepreneur. So that's what I got busy doing. And it now it wasn't, didn't happen overnight like that. I had to find a way to find the right gift shops. Now, there are gift shops and there are gift shops. Mm -hmm. And it turned out that the gift shop that I needed to find was in a tourist area. Now you think about this, I only had one album. If you only have one product and you're gonna sell it in a store, if you're only selling to a fixed set of customers, once they buy it, you're done. Mm -hmm. And that's it, <laughs> end of your business, right? Mm -hmm. But if you're in a shop that has brand new set of customers every day, you can have one hot, hot selling item. You can sell that item all day long. Yeah. Tomorrow you got a brand new set of customers all day long. That was the magic formula that I needed to find. Mm -hmm. But I, could, I didn't know how to do that. I just started at random calling gift shops around. Uh, uh, and first of all, we, we actually physically visited the gift shops. We'd mm. go on a weekend, we'd, Linda and I would go to these tourist towns. She'd go down one side of the sidewalk and I'd go down the other and we'd look in the gift shops and do our prospecting in person. And if it was a good prospect, I'd leave them a cassette tape or a CD and say, if you like the music, call me. Almost all of them did that, mm -hmm. that loved the music. So I knew that that method of through gift shops, that there were others and that they did like it and they would play it and sell it. Right. And I built up my customer base from, you know, that one to probably 2025 in really pretty short order. But then I ran out of places that we could go to in a, on a weekend. You know, you kind of yeah. run out of territory that you can comfortably get to. Mm -hmm. And so I had to start calling gift shops. Well, I had to get their phone numbers. And back then, we had something called a phone book. <laughs> Our young people today don't even know what a phone book is probably, mm -hmm. but uh, other than electronically, but we had physical phone books. And the Library of Congress in downtown Washington, D.C. had a room, had every phone book yeah. in the country, mm -hmm. the whole room full of them. I would go down to the Library of Congress, find the towns that I wanted to get their gift shop listings, go in to find the yellow pages, and make a Xerox copy of those gift shop pages in the yellow pages. And I'd make enough of them and I'd bring it home and I'd start calling. And I would call on Saturday morning from 10 o'clock when the East Coast gift shops opened up till my voice would probably give out around six o'clock. <laughs> and I would start then go over, start calling to the West Coast because they were three hours behind us. Mm -hmm. And so I would call Saturdays and Sundays uh, for every weekend. I made so many phone calls that my phone bill came in a box. <laughs> it was like the size of a, it was like a shoe box. And it literally was full of little pages of all, every individual phone call listed. I'd made thousands of phone calls. Most of them were 13 seconds long because I would call and say, here's what I'd say. Do you sell any cassette tapes of the music you play in your store? And I'd wait for the answer. And if they said, nope, we don't play music. Well, thank you very much. Goodbye. 13 second phone call. Go to the next one. Every, I had to make 29 phone calls. I'm sorry, 30 phone calls to get one that would say yes. Now that's how thin it was back then. There were the most people had no idea about playing music and selling it in their gift shops. Mm -hmm. And so I, you know, I'd get no 29 times before I'd get a yes. And that's a lot of no. And if you're an entrepreneur, 
One of the things you've got to get used to <laughs> in any kind of prospecting you do, you've got to get used to people telling you no. Mm -hmm. And you also have to get used to just thinking that no doesn't mean no. It just not means yet. Not, not yet. There you go. You got it. It means not yet. Yeah. And so I did that. And my one in 30 was, you know, it was, I could, I could make enough to have, you know, 15 or 20 prospects by the end of the weekend. And most all of them would call me back and become customers. But that was a lot of work. I mean, to yeah. get just that number of customers, I had to get more efficient. There had to be a better way. Mm -hmm. And my problem I realized was I wasn't calling the right gift shops. I wasn't calling in tourist areas. Tourist areas, when I'd get a tourist town, I would notice that the hit rate in my calling would go boom from one in 30 down to one in four and five. Almost everybody there was doing that. It was different mindset, totally different mindset in a tourist town. So I said, okay, how do I find out where all the tourist towns in the United States are? Mm -hmm. uh, surely to goodness, the Chamber of Commerce or the Department of Commerce has this wonderful list that they can just send to me and I'll have all the tourist towns in the whole country. I called them up. Nobody had ever even thought about putting together a list of tourist towns. I mean, it was like everybody, well, I live in Virginia. Everybody knows where all the tourist towns are in Virginia. I said, yeah, so do I. But I don't know where they are in Oregon or yeah. you know, Washington State. I don't, that's not close to me. Well, I got nowhere. And then I got to thinking, here my old, good old left brain starts kicking in again. I'm an analytical person. I said, there's got to be a way to calculate this, to arrive at these. So, and think about it. What are the two characteristics that's all you need to know that would define a tourist town? Number one, I've got tons of gift shops. I mean, you know, street, Main Street is probably nothing but gift shop. Mm -hmm. How many people live permanently in a, in a tourist town? What's the permanent population in a tourist town? Not too many. I mean, most of them are really small towns. They're, you know, like Blowing Rock, North Carolina. Uh, I'm trying to think of the ones that would be close to the, up, up, up in the mountains. Helen, Helen. Yeah, Helen, Georgia. Yes, mm -hmm. exactly. And you, if you look up the population of Helen, Georgia, probably not too many people. Yeah. But lots of gift shops. Mm -hmm. So I said, now that's the data that I need to be able to arrive at these towns. Where can I get the data? Well, it turns out I could purchase the listing for the gift shops in the entire country. I could go there. We had something called the Yellow Pages back then, and the mm -hmm. Yellow Pages company would sell. You know, uh -huh. you, could, you could say, by, I want all the gift shops in the entire United States alphabetically printed by within town, within the state. And I think it was, it cost me a couple hundred bucks. It was not cheap, but I ended up with a printout about this thick, about four inches thick on big wide computer paper that had all 75,000 <laughs> gift shops. <laughs> You're right. Now, can you imagine me? Thinking now, how many? How old will I be when I'm finished? <laughs> so anyway, I got the printout, and and it was perfect because it had alphabetical order within town, and all I had to do was say, well, Blowing Rock, North Carolina, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eighty-five gift shops, and so I made me a spreadsheet. I went through the whole printout. It took me a long time, but I counted them out. I made me a spreadsheet that had the the city, the state and how many gift shops were in that, mm -hmm. that, that city and state. And went through the whole thing. 
Now I said, okay, the other piece of information I need is how many people live there? What's the permanent census population of, you know, Helen, Georgia, or mm -hmm. Rock, North Carolina, whatever? And so I, I, so I knew that if you want to know something these days, go to the library. A librarian can answer almost any question. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they are wonderful people. They, if they don't know, they know where to go get it. Yeah, and yeah. so they are a great resource. So just so happens the public library was across the street from my office in Bethesda. I walked over there at lunchtime one day and I talked to the library and told her what I wanted. And she says, oh, I've got just the thing for you right here. And I have a copy, my copy that I ended up buying. Here it is. I want to show you. <laughs> I know it's heavy. It's a big book. <gasps> oh, my goodness. This thing weighs 12 pounds. It's the Rand McNally. The 1990 <laughs> Commercial Atlas and Marketing Guide. Oh and she goodness. says, this, this book, now, I, I knew I was going to have to get sit in the library for a long time if I was going to get my numbers. So I found out that I could buy one of these myself. But look inside this book. I mean, there are. Oh, uh, my goodness. Let's see. Where is the, uh, I'll get it here in just a second if I can. I just referenced Rand, Rand McNally the other day when I was teasing people about how when I moved to Georgia, I used just the Rand McNally because we didn't have Google yet. Yeah. Well, like here's here's Kentucky, for example. There's mm -hmm. the maps. Mm -hmm. But the, the main thing is, look in the back here in the back. This is. As for New York, for example, it has alphabetically every little census crossroad in the state. Oh, my goodness. And one of the things is the population. You know, it, it gives you the, the, the population from the census there. Oh, so, super. So now in this book and my list computer printout I had, I had all the data I needed. So I went through and on my spreadsheet, I looked up the population of all those towns put that in the spreadsheet. And then the next thing is where the magic happens. I said, okay, computer, you calculate the ratio of population per mm -hmm. gift shop. And when you get that number, sort my database within each state, the towns in that ratio with the smallest number at the top, mm -hmm. because you want this, the, the town that has the smallest number of people per gift shop mm -hmm. has got to be a tourist town because, yeah. and sure enough, when I did that, the printout on Tennessee, there was Gatlinburg, Tennessee, right at the top of the list, right on North Carolina, Blowing Rock, right at the top of the list, and Georgia, Helen, Georgia, right there at the top. You know, every, and states that I had no clue about, I didn't need to worry about it. There they were right at the top of the list. Oh. And, I, and then I could go to my printout and lo and behold, start calling those. And it was the exact same thing that I expected. I went from one in 30 to one in four or five. I was just getting customers right and left, right and left. And I'd have to have, take two carload trips of packages to the <laughs> post office on, on Monday for all these prospects. Again, was, a good it, problem. Oh man, what a great problem. And so my gift shop, I went from a handful, I ended up with over 1,000 gift shops in the really? entire country. One. Thousand. That's a little bit higher than your first bringing Linda over. Four, four times <laughs> higher than my 250. But it worked and it was just, and it's the lesson there is that if you can find surrogates for what you're trying to do, if you don't know the data, at least find some piece of data that correlates to it.
-hmm. And you can, chances are, find a way to target what you're trying to do and become more efficient at your prospecting or whatever you're trying to sell or promote. And, you know, that business today is, it's called analytics and big mm -hmm. data. There are companies. In fact, I have a very good friend who is the CEO of a, a Enmar, which makes, that's their business is yeah. big mm -hmm. data. And uh, it's a huge benefit to companies that want to use that to do very smart, targeted advertising, for example. Like, you ever wonder why you're on Google and you do a Google search on something, you know, and then all of a sudden, and, and next, all of a sudden that's, well, how did they know I've been looking at mm -hmm. that? Mm -hmm. It's like, are they reading my mind? Are they all looking over my shoulder? Is that camera really spying on me? <laughs> I, you know, as you're talking, I, I really think that you were the, the first JV partner. <laughs> you had all of those JV partners in your gift stores that they were the people that said, yeah, I can help you. Mm -hmm. How cool is that? Yeah. Well, that was, I love telling that story because it really hopefully causes people to think about what might apply to their businesses or whatever they do. But I, it just was such a, a magical improvement in the way I was doing business that it just, it made a huge difference and, and enabled me by the time 1992 rolled around, mm -hmm. I was able to quit my job at AT&T and do my music full time. And I wasn't old enough to retire and I didn't have enough years service to retire uh, actively then. Mm -hmm. so I was only 44 and I only had, you know, uh, 24 two years of service. So, mm -hmm. but I could not wait. I, the, num <laughs> the numbers were there and I said, you okay. You were done being a geek. <laughs> I was done being a geek and I'm going to be a, the music man now. So, so that's a, that's a fun oh. story. I love to tell that story. That story's in my book, by the way, if you want to read about the, the, the book. It's, it's And your book is on Amazon, right? It's on Amazon. Yeah. Oh. It's uh, and you can find it from my website real easy because I've got links right to the Amazon pages right straight to it for my music and my book but perfect but, uh, perfect I, that's why i you know I, I love writing those stories up in my in my book because i've been telling that story for you know uh, rotary clubs or those kind of meetings when i would mm -hmm. tell, tell stories and play a little bit of music kind of thing and people kept saying ah, you need to write those stories down in a book and i said well maybe someday well someday came around and it was called pandemic so when we were <laughs> we were sitting around at home, you probably know the exact uh, no. same thing. You're sitting there thinking, well, I can't go out to eat. I can't go visit somebody. What am I going to do? So you have to think about, well, you got to make your, you should be making yourself productive. Yep. Well, Linda, my wife, with she's the one with all the great ideas anyway all the time. She <laughs> says, all right, Dave, now's the time to sit down and get on that computer and write your book. Mm -hmm. So I did. It took me about nine months to put all those stories down and get them edited and get the cover designed and all the stuff that you do when you're writing a book. Mm -hmm. But I got it published on Amazon last October. It became a bestseller in about three or four categories. And it's uh, people really enjoy reading it. And I get lots of positive feedback from that. And uh, so I encourage people to, if you like this story, get my book. There's a bunch of other stories in there like it. Yep. And, you know, I think one of the lessons is that you just have to do it. You, you can't wait till someday. Mm -hmm. Just go and do it. Take action. You know? As my That's good friend, exactly right. 
as my good friend Jack Canfield says, and he wrote the forward to my book. And he's the one, you know, that wrote the chicken, co-wrote the Chicken Soup for the Soul mm -hmm. books. And he, 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 one of his things is take action. You know, you don't, yeah. as an, uh, I heard yesterday on a thing on TV that somebody said, you can never turn if you're sitting still. Mm -hmm. If you're sitting in the parking lot, you can turn your steering wheel all day long and you're not going to go anywhere. You have to be moving forward to be able to turn. Exactly right. And so that's true in life. You know, you have mm -hmm. to be able to be moving to make the right turns in your life to get somewhere. Yeah. And don't worry if it's the wrong road. Nope. Because you just turn again. Yep. You just, you just keep changing. <laughs> with, with our GPS today, it'll say, That's all right, exactly right. All right. Make a safe for your turn. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. I always, whenever I do speeches, I always talk about, you know, um, our life is, is like GPS. You know, we, we are going down the road and then GPS might be telling us to go <laughs> one way, but we know this way and, and we're comfortable this way, but, but GPS is saying to go that way. Maybe you just take that risk and try that new road, that new journey. Mm -hmm. that exactly. New yep. <laughs> All right. So we're going to end this with some rapid fire questions. Just, you know, All right. top of your mind, uh, take a minute to just respond. So what's the best song you ever um, met, a songwriter you ever met? I'm sure you must have met some folks now. Oh, my goodness. Um Songwriter I ever met. Um, let me think. Well, I've met a lot of people in the country music field in Nashville. Uh, you know, I've, I've met Randy Travis and and uh, a lot of country musicians. Um, I've gotten to see uh, a lot of musicians as well that are kind of mentors and heroes to me, like Roger Williams and, mm -hmm. and uh, Henry Mancini. I got to hear him one time. He's oh, he's marvelous songwriter, yeah. and, and uh, I love his music. So um, I can't think of any name that comes right to the top of my mind at the moment, but... Uh, I, well, I, you named some good ones. I did, so okay, <laughs> all right. You did. In your bio, I, I was reading, um, you call out joy and peace what to you does whenever you think of joy and peace what does it mean to you in your life today well it i think it is being in a in a environment and a state of mind where the stresses of the world and the things around you are not as uh, impactful on you as your own internal uh, attitudes and state of mind. It's when you're at peace, you could be right in the middle of a, you know, a incredible situation and still be at peace because you're in control of your own yeah. thoughts and feelings for the most part. And so to be, to have joy and be at peace, I think is, is pretty much a state of mind that you can, uh, find ways that, control yourself. Now, like, for example, I know that when I want to be at peace and have uh, just calm down, I can sit at the piano and play or just playing music or turn on, put up my headset on and, and put on some of my favorite uh, music, whether it's Henry Mancini or, or 
or even if it's just something really enjoyable like the many lovely, wonderful songs of the doo-wop from the 60s and 70s, or, or I love the Carpenters. Oh, oh uh, me too. I love the Carpenters. Karen Carpenter's voice can put me at ease in a heartbeat. So it's music, I think, is a way to help me control my own internal feelings of the, the stress. So I think that to me is how I think about peace and joy. And I think, and I'm, I'm the same way, and we have a lot of things in common, but I think that if people would understand that, if you're starting, if you're having a crappy day, if you're starting to get stressed out, if you just stop and just, take a moment to listen to the that that song that music that will calm you down like your mm -hmm. music i'm you know just it takes you to that special place so find those songs that touch you and you know have them available mm -hmm. on your phone and the greatest thing is you know with the technology we have yeah. there's all there's always a way that you can get to that special song mm-hmm Yep, it's going to be very easy to just to tell your favorite whatever, play Rachel's song by Gary Prim, and mm -hmm. bingo, there it'll come playing on your speaker, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. Yeah. The, the next one is actually kind of along the same lines. <clears throat> Music and healing. In the, the many people that you have in your scrapbook and in those letters that haven't quite made it to a scrapbook yet, Tell us maybe one story that shows how music has healed somebody with, you know, in their mind and their spirit, whatever. Well, there's a, a wonderful story. I think it's probably the first or second one in this chapter in my book, chapter mm -hmm. 21, that talks about uh, a lady who basically tell, told me through the story. Her name is, first name is Joan. That is the second story in my book about, she says, I am a newly recovering alcoholic. And my music was suggested for her to listen to because of her extreme restlessness. And I understand that the uh, side effect of alcoholism is, you know, they have trouble going to sleep. They're just so restless they cannot sleep. Insomnia. And she says, the first time I listened to it through a headset, and peacefully set, fell asleep. I continued to do so until about four months ago, a member of my AA group asked if she could borrow my tapes and she never returned them. <laughs> okay, about a month later, I went out and purchased the tapes once again and slept soundly and with a great deal of peace once again. It still amazes me the extent that your music affects me, especially emotionally. Tears swell constantly. I continuously enjoy your music. It has truly helped me maintain my peacefulness and in doing so has helped me maintain my sobriety. Thank you for sharing your music and talent. Your music has touched parts of my heart and soul that I believed to be long dead. Thanks again for helping make a difference in my life. May God bless you always, Joan. What a now, wonderful tribute. It, oh, my goodness. And, and I've, that's just one of many like that that I've gotten. But that one, that was early on. I mean, that was really, really early. And that really confirmed to me that I was doing the right thing. You know, sometimes you, you, you charge off on your, your <laughs> enterprise or your business or your entrepreneur uh, journey, 
you're not sure of your, am I doing the right thing? Yeah. And it was, I, did I do the right thing to quit my 22 and a half year career job <laughs> at, at AT&T? You know, you need some confirmation and affirmation that you're doing the right thing. And those for me came in the form of these letters and notes from these over 50,000 people that wrote to me. Oh. You know, one of the uh, mentors that I have had talked about you know, whenever you're on your deathbed and you're reflecting on your life, will you be happy with what you've done? And I think that you can say yes. I certainly hope so, because yeah, yeah. Uh, somebody asked me earlier today on another podcast, you know, what about the what is the legacy of my music or whatever? Mm -hmm. And I and I simply said, well, I hope that 100 years from now, 200 years from now, whatever method people use to listen, that music will still be around, mm -hmm. and that whatever method people use to listen to music, that I hope that my music will still be able to be played and heard even long after I'm gone. And because I think the, the nature of my music that I've come to believe is that it is really uh, music for the ages. It's, it doesn't have a, a, a time limit on mm -hmm. it or an expiration date. It's, it's kind of what they call evergreen. It's, mm -hmm. it's going to be there and it's hopefully timeless. it's timeless. Yeah. yeah, it's timeless. The last one is power of storytelling. You've been telling stories all evening now and so enjoyable to listen to. But a story has a lesson. A story has, um, you know, takes us on a, a journey, a ride. So what, what else have you found with the benefit and the power of your storytelling? Well, I think it does have a way of connecting with people. If they can identify with the part of a story that you're telling, whether I'm, I'm talking to somebody in a, you know, like in, in your case, we connected through the fact that we both knew about Helen, Georgia and, and Roswell. And, and so there's a connection there. Mm -hmm. And so if you can tell a story that brings the listener into the story with you, or if you can, for example, in my, in my recording music story, mm -hmm. I want you to be in the studio with me. I would love for you to have heard exactly what I heard. And now you can. When you hear Rachel's song played, you're hearing what I heard in that story. Mm -hmm. And so storytelling is so powerful. And I've, I've had some uh, wonderful assistance with people giving me advice on how to be a good storyteller. Jeffrey Berwind is uh, the name that comes to mind. He's a wonderful storyteller in uh, the Philadelphia area. He's the one responsible for all of those docents traveling around the city of, of Philadelphia telling stories rather than just uh, citing facts. Yeah, That was Jeffrey's idea. And Jeffrey was my mentor when writing my book to, to get my stories in a storytelling mode. And another thing I know about you is you like Toastmasters. I do, I do. And I do too. Uh, when I was a young man in Western Electric, one of the things that I learned about was Toastmasters. And I was nervous as a cat my first <laughs> yeah. few times going to a Toastmasters <laughs> meeting because, you know, they go around the room and everybody there has got to t stand up and tell a little story for, and they, give you, they give you a topic and you only got about a 10 seconds. A minute seconds, to two, minute. one to two minutes. <laughs> and that's it. Well, that really, that, that's excellent training on mm -hmm. thinking on your feet and thinking mm -hmm thinking while you're doing something else. You know, a lot of times you, you freeze up, and that's the problem with most 
public speaking mm -hmm. folks, they get their, their mind just freezes up because they're so <laughs> worried about what it is that's going to happen. But that was great training. And uh, this, the Toastmasters really are a great thing for teaching you how to be a great storyteller. Some of the best Toastmasters that win the contest, why did they win it? They are fantastic storytellers. Yeah. They have you in the palm of their hand in just about five seconds, and you're there. Yeah. You so transcend your audience to that time, to that place, to feel, smell, hear everything. All the senses. Put all mm -hmm. the senses in there, and I, you know, yeah. if, you can, the, if you can make them taste it, touch it, feel it, smell mm -hmm. it, everything. Yeah. 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 Twenty-five years for me now. Really. Congratulations. That's yeah. very commendable. Thank you. No tell yeah. how many no tell how many young people you have helped change their life for the better because now they're great storytellers. So I, I also have since 2011 I do youth programs and I thought, you know, why should I wait till the kid that you know those are young adults in 30s like when I started. Yeah. And so I do 8 to 17 year olds. Oh. Um, teaching them how to be better communicators. And I do once a year a program uh, of youth of the year. So they have to do an inspiration, an inspiration speech. Great. And so you, you've got your own little TEDx talk going there yeah. with the kids, right? But it's so, it's so amazing because the kids are so digital now that they don't understand. They don't have all the tools to be good communicators. And, and so I start... I'm able to teach them that. And uh, even I did it during pandemic on via Zoom, which okay, was helpful good. for them to understand how to do this whole remote schooling as well. So that's that's my passion. I love love working with kids to teach them how to do that. Well, good for you. Great. That's wonderful. All right. So before we sign off, um, I want you to tell everybody your website and your um how they would get in contact with you if um i know we said you have your book on amazon and you have um oh so your your email and your website seem to be very similar your website is https mm -hmm. colon forward slash forward slash Combs with a capital C O M B S capital M U S I C dot com. So that's combsmusic.com. Yeah. And we will have that in the um, written in the outro of this as well. And, okay. and may I give your email or do you just want That's them sure. to do it? Sure. It's real, so it's real simple. <laughs> so it's Dave a small d a v e dave at combsmusic.com and that is all small so dave at combsmusic.com again yeah. dave at combsmusic.com and he is on facebook he is on linkedin and youtube and he's on youtube obviously that's you saw the music that i played today was mm -hmm. from youtube so go ahead and check out that uh download his song, check out his book, because I'm sure just like me, I'm anxious to read those other stories in chapter 21 of that book. Mm -hmm. And again, yeah. the book's name is, if you want to give that one more time, I see it right there, Touched by the Music. Touched uh, by the Music, right. Right. 
And I want to just thank you. It's been such a lovely evening. I know um, you've referenced Roswell. Have you been here before? I may have. We have friend, good friends that live around Atlanta. So I've, mm -hmm. I've, more than likely, I've been <laughs> at least through Roswell anyhow. Yeah, driving on 400. Yeah. <laughs> Pass it by. All right. So it's been wonderful. I want everybody to make sure you check out his website. We've received great tips. We've re received great stories and music tonight. And um, if you have any questions, please go ahead and reach out to him. Before we sign off, I just also want to remind you of that I do have my book where I'm a, one of 21 authors. I'm chapter five. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the name of the book is Unstoppable, Being Fierce, Fearless, and Unfuckwithable in Life and Business. The author is Rachel Lawson. And again, I'm chapter five. Until next time, remember, life is a journey, and it's really up to you to enjoy the ride. Thank you all. And See me next time on the Find Your Leadership Confidence with Vicki Nethlin. Thank you for tuning into the Find Your Leadership Confidence podcast with Vicki Nethling, where we share impactful lessons that help you grow as an individual, grow your confidence, and find the positive and good within you so you powerfully and authentically become the best version of yourself. Remember to visit our website at www.findyourleadershipconfidence.com and enjoy even more great episodes like this one. Again, while you're here, subscribe to us via your favorite network. We look forward to seeing you next time on the Find Your Leadership Confidence podcast.